Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello and welcome to Word in Your Ear. Um, One of the distinguishing marks of really, really successful acts, hugely successful acts, is that they all have somewhere a chronicler. They all have somebody who started out as a fan and then they... Over a period of time, they became they, they somehow came to the notice of the act. And at first, the act usually just tolerated them as a sort of that strange, <laughs> nerdy bloke who turns up whenever we're doing so-and-so. And then something happens, something magical. After, and it might take 20, 30 years, but the act reaches a point where they realise that the person who knows more about them than they know themselves is that chronicler. And I've met a number of these people. We've even had some of them as you know, guests on, uh, on Word in Your in the, in the past. Mark Lewis, yeah. who fulfills that function for the Beatles. And uh, I'm saying that the man who fulfills that function for the Led Zeppelin is... Our guest this evening, would you please welcome Dave Lewis. Hi. Good to be here. It's, very, it's good to have you, Dave. I have to say that uh, I've got here on, on my lap the heaviest book uh, we've ever talked about on Word in Your Ear. And uh, it, it, it almost take, took an articulated lorry to bring it here this, this, this evening, which is Evenings with Led Zeppelin, the complete concert chronicle which we'll talk about uh, later on. And uh, I was today, when I was planning my visit here, I thought, dare I just drop Dave an email and say, are you bringing your copy? <laughs> and just as I was about to put my fingers on the keyboard, in came an email from Dave and say, are you bringing along? <laughs> he could have saved himself the carriage. Very heavy on the train. Very heavy. How much does it cost to post this, Dave? Um, I think it's about 30 UK. <laughs> like yeah, yeah. And I, 
You want to be taking them on your bicycle to the post office because that's what I've done. That's what I do. You see, I think, apart from anything else, I think it's the heaviest rock book I've ever come across. Have you ever thought about applying for a special award? It, it could Have well you, be. I think it probably will be. It, it could well be. It, it certainly felt like it when we were writing it. That's a sure fact. <laughs> well, look, we'll talk about that a bit, a bit later on. But you, you are... You are Mr. Led Zeppelin now. Are you, are you proud to, you know, embrace that uh, that title? Yes, I am. I'm extremely proud. It's been a lifetime's work. Um, you know, it started when I was 12, 13, and little did I know when I was nearly 63, I would be sitting here with an audience talking about Led Zeppelin. It's been an extraordinary ride. And, you know, I've met many great people. I've, I've met many great musicians i've met them i've worked with them um it, it's been a lifetime's work and it just it feels great it feels I've, I, the fact is there's so much interest in them still um you know there's websites there's you know there's so much going on there's facebook groups there's social media going mad somebody right now is listening to led zeppelin 4 it's a fact um it just and, and is they are. They and this are. is 40 and, um, years after they split you know, up as well i didn't know when i first saw them in 1971 when I paid 75p to see them at Empire Wembley Pool, that all this would still go on. It's, it's a wonder, and uh, I'm very proud of it. So tell us about the first time you heard them. Can you remember? Yeah, very vividly. I was a big music fan when I was 12. I like you know, the Beals, I like the Stones. And um, I used to listen to the weekly um, Top 40 countdown. Alan Freeman did it at the time. And he was a big rock fan as well. So I, I, I like chant music and I like to find out what was going on. So in November 69, I sat down to find out where um, Call Me Number One by the Tremolos was faring in the chart and whether it was going to knock the Archie's Sugar Sugar off number one. <laughs> <laughs> These were the important Crucial. things in my life. This mattered. Yeah. But Alan Freeman that day, as he sometimes did, played an album track. It was a whole lot of love by Led Zeppelin. I heard this track, and nothing was ever the same in my life after that. When you went, you went and bought the record, did you? Uh, no. What happened was, um, I yeah, I was only twelve, thirteen, so I'd, I, you know, couldn't buy the record. But um, I knew a guy who was local um, who had an elder brother who had Led Zeppelin too. Um, not only that. In the local record shop that we had in Bedford, or one of many, you were able to go in and request that you listen to an album, but you could only listen to side one. So for a long time, I always thought Led Zeppelin 2 started with a whole lot of love and finished with thank you. But I realised when I got the album got the next whole, year... Whole bonus extra it was bonus extra. <laughs> it, was, it was like a maxi-single. But um, so and, then, and that kicked it off, and then I got the scrapbooks going, and I read The Enemy... And I just followed them, you know, religiously. What was it about a whole lot of love? Just as a matter of fact, what do you well, mean? I, I think there were, several, there were several things about it. One was the riff, which, which has been voted the greatest riff of all time, and who's to argue? Um, <laughs> ACDC doesn't get a look in. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you're out there. Um, yeah, the, obviously, the riff, the excitement, uh, the drumming is just phenomenal. I and, mean, it, it, you know, I, I quickly realised that John Bonham was a drummer that didn't play in the normal way. You know, and, you know, what he didn't play was as important what he did play. And that's a good example, certainly on that track, as the intro comes in. And then that a vocalist, um, who s sounded like he was shouting to the moon, 
and having an orgasm halfway through it. Um, <laughs> not that I knew what that was when I was 12. <laughs> he lied. Um, so uh, the, the whole excitement of it, I mean, it was just something different. It was something exceptional. It was powerful. There was chemistry. It wasn't the tremolos. I've quickly <laughs> identified it wasn't the tremolos. It wasn't the hollies, but it was brilliant. And I wanted was, a lot more. But it also wasn't the Rolling Stones, was it? it no, was, it wasn't. It was a very different kind of sound, wasn't it? it, it well, yeah, it was I mean, again, sound. I think when we talked earlier in the year, you, know, you don't get records made like that now. You know, Led Zeppelin too, And again, Jimmy Page is possibly undersold what a production wizard he was because not only did um you know not only was he a fantastic guitarist he made the sound of led zeppelin that's there's no question about that and he learned that through the sessions that he played through the yardbirds um he had the skill to make the sound something exceptional and uh, and it's unique you can't even put a finger on it really it's something that he had that he brought to those records that was unique to Led Zeppelin. And it's why, in my opinion, they were quickly elevated from the Deep Purples, the Black Sabbath, with huge respect, great bands. Led Zeppelin had something special, and it was definitely in the sound of those albums, and he, he just made it work. So when I heard that track, and I think a lot of people too, you wanted to hear more, and you wanted to know more, because Led Zeppelin was a bit of a secret society. It was like, it wasn't the Stones, they weren't on top of the Pops, they didn't have singles. So you had to find out, you know, word of mouth and through the enemy and Melody Maker, but there wasn't much written, which is why many years hence, I thought, they need a fan club. But Led Zeppelin don't do fan clubs. Let's do a fanzine. But we'll come on to that. So um, did you notice it amongst your kind of peer group at the time, you were 12, 13 or whatever, that the that Led Zeppelin kind of nation, the, the new group of fans, were younger teenagers rather than older ones. The older ones were into the Stones and well, free that's or... Well, you come it? into... Well, I remember being at school and when suddenly the glam, you know, the glam rock thing kicked in and you've got T-Rex and you've got Slade, I was very much the person that had to keep their album, you know, kept out the way under their arms because I wasn't in those gangs. I liked those bands. But I think for a lot of teenagers who didn't get it, and there were people that didn't get it. it. It all seemed a bit odd. Led Zeppelin, what's that? You know, who's he? You know, why is he not on top of the pops next week? You did feel that your peer group thought you were a little bit odd. Um, but your older peer group, um, the fifth formers, if you like, the sixth formers, they really got it. And, and obviously, you know, along with other bands of the day, the Jethro Tiles, etc., Zep were very much in that. So I did go around thinking... Um, you know, maybe I'm a bit different. Um, and I, I do remember one story I've got. I brought Music Scene magazine, which was a magazine that was going at the time, and had a picture of Robert Plant, a really great picture. And uh, one of my schoolmates looked at it, and uh, he looked at Robert Plant, he drew a penis on him. Um, and I was mortified. I had this great picture of Robert Plant, but now someone had drawn a penis on it. And I thought, I may not be in the right peer group here. I need to move on. And uh, that, was, that was how it went. But, uh, yeah... I'd certainly soon met a lot of like-minded people. You, and, were, uh, you weren't at that age. You know, the thing that, that made them... One of the things that made them really different from Black Sabbath and Deep Purple was that it, they were sexy. <laughs> they sang about sex in a really kind of direct way. Do you not find that confusing at 12, 13? Um, All the business about lemons and so... Well, 
I knew what a lemon was, and I knew you had to squeeze it um, <laughs> quite hard. Um, but <laughs> I think I think there was an, I, I like the way they looked. I can tell you that without you know any gay tendencies. I knew they looked good, and I knew. I'm not saying I wanted to look like that, but I knew when I saw them, and eventually when I saw them live, as many people did, there was something exceptional about the look. It, it, you know, certainly Jimmy um, had a way of dressing, and obviously, you know, Robert was a, an amazing fun. And there was something about the look and the sound. Yes, I would say it was, you know, it was a bit primeval. It was a bit, you know, it was in your face, um, quite literally. And I, but I think. I think underlying that was was the skill of the musicianship. But that was the thing that obviously drew a lot of people to it. And the chemistry. This was a four-man group that you just couldn't take any part away. And, and as we know, that exactly was you know the case you know when John Bonham died. So you said that the first time you went to see them was uh, that when Wembley arena was still called the empire pool <laughs> well, the tickets were available from all branches of harlequin records the, we're, we're oh, looking at we're looking at this is just wonderful yeah. this is the, the 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 print promotion for led zeppelin's show at the empire pool wembley on saturday the 20th of november and you got your tickets the only way you could get your tickets presumably yeah. was all branches yeah. of harlequin you yeah. couldn't even send off a postal order with a stamp to dress on? No, I did go on Facebook that week, but nothing happened. Um, <laughs> um, no, it, it was literally, uh, I think we got them from a London branch. We didn't have one in Bedford at the time. Um, that followed. So you'd have uh, to come after. down from Bedford to London? Yeah, yeah. yeah to I, buy the tickets? Yeah, it was my brother got the tickets. And um, it, I mean, it was an incredible day. We, uh, we actually went on the Sunday. They added a second date. That that one sold out very quickly. The Sunday, and we got down there about four o'clock, and uh, it was a five. It was a five-hour show. They had uh, Home with the opening act, oh, Stone huh? the Crows, um, and then Led Zeppelin. In between all that, they had circus acts because Peter Grant wanted to make every Led Zeppelin gig, as he once told me. Led Zeppelin. When Led Zeppelin played a concert, it wasn't just a concert, it was an event, and that was certainly an event. So they had these pigs that came on the stage that were meant to do something and pigs. did nothing. Pigs. They had performing pigs with ruffs around them. They had a plate all, spinner. All this for 75 pence. Yeah, all the, I mean, this is, before you got, this is before you got to the immigrant song. Yeah. So um, it was... Um, and had a plate spinner, uh, which didn't work either. Um, so those circus acts didn't quite work as well. It was freezing cold. You know, it's a, I think during the week it was an ice rink. Um, yes, it and was. I think it was. still yeah, had the, the, the was under the floor. Yeah. So I remember it being incredibly cold. You were actually standing on the ice. Um, yeah. I, it very much felt like I was touching into the counterculture because it was a, one of the first times that Richard Branson... Had set up a Virgin record store, and he he, he actually had the album Led Zeppelin Four and many other albums because he'd just gone into the mail order business, and I think he was just about to get the first shop in Oxford Street. So it had that feeling that I was part of something, and I, I mean I didn't quite understand all of it. And then right in front of my eyes, Led Zeppelin came on stage, performed the Immigrant Song into Heartbreaker, and I can honestly tell you nothing was the same in our house ever again <laughs> and it was an incredible performance and I, I remember going to school the next day in a complete daze and, and again some of my schoolmates knew I was going but again as I say because of the, secret, the sort of secrecy of Led Zeppelin 
no one quite understood at that age. You know, I, I needed to be with older people, which is probably what happened in the end. But that, that, was, a, that was a groundbreaking day, without a doubt. And, and from then on, I wanted to see Led Zeppelin live as many times as I could. And but that's in what fact, I did. You, you only saw them, was it, was it 15 times, I think? Yeah, I did Because the tragedy is, yeah. well, you, you put out the, the stuff, we'll get on to the magazine in a moment, but you start publishing the magazine and two years later they split up. Well, yeah, so, I, I saw them the next year at um, Alexander Palace when they played there. Again, yeah. that was an attempt to do something really different. No one had played the Ali Pali for a long time. Again, the sound wasn't great. Um, by the time they do an Else Court, which is 1975, which is at, which, you know, Led Zeppelin's peak years. So if they were going to play one day, I was going to go. If they were going to play two, I was going to go. If they played three, I was going to go. And four and five, I went to all five. Uh, if they'd have played ten, I'd have gone all ten. And, I mean, that was an incredible week. I mean, to, to see Led Zeppelin... Um, on a Saturday and Sunday one week and a Friday and Saturday and Sunday the next week, well, that's utopia. I was 18 years old. And, and again, they were, that was the peak of their powers in, in, in quite a lot of ways. The set list was incredible. You know, you had the light show, you had the lasers. They'd gone from, you know, the T-shirts and plimsolls. It was now, you know, Jimmy in the dragon suit. And, and the whole look of it and the whole, you know, look at us, we're number one. And whoever's number two might as well not turn up. Because at that point, that is how big they were. And Physical Feet, was an incredible album. Um, so that was an incredible moment, an incredible week. And that's when I first met them backstage. And how, uh, did, how did you manage that? Well, by a lot of fluke and a lot of enthusiasm. Because we'd realised that every night they went off, um, there was a black curtain at the side of the stage. And looking back, we used to see it go back, because we, 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 most nights we were quite near... And I could see there was a lot of limousines and caravans in this backstage area. So that was obviously where they were. So on the final night, they did an extra encore. Um, and we hung around. And nobody, you know, the stewards came around and said, you've got to leave now. We sort of hid around the corner. And then um, there was a guy on security for a while at this black um, sort of curtain thing. And then he went, very conveniently. He was obviously fed up. He was on, I don't know, probably double time. It was a Sunday night, he'd had enough. So uh, we wandered through, and sitting on a limousine was Robert Plant right in front of us. And to say he looked like a rock god and something from another planet is an understatement. And, and it was just incredible. I was missing Robert Plant. And then that did, did he mind that his security had just buggered off home then? <laughs> no, no, I don't, no, it was very relaxed right. backstage. Uh, you know, that, that, these caravans. And they were having a party that night in in the Earl's Court Arena, in a basement. In fact, Dr. Feelgood played the gig. We didn't get in for the party, but we saw them all go in, and then we knew they had to come out. So we just stayed there. And again, something I did, <laughs> I wasn't going anywhere. But about two in the morning, I wandered around the Earl's Court area, and uh, I wandered up to the stage. And I actually went on the stage and stood on the stage. There was Jones's piano was left, and that was about it. But I looked out and I could see the arena. I mean, it was just incredible. And all this was happening. Um, and, and then we went back and they all came out. We chatted to them all. So that was the beginning. I mean, I had, there was no set plan to meet them. But once I had, well, you, want, you obviously want to meet them again. So uh, that became a mission too. So what do you say to them? Well, I saw What's your Robert, advice I'll tell you what I did say. I, I, I mean, I was completely overawed. But I said something ridiculous like, when are you going to play in England again? I mean, they just played their first gigs for four years or whatever it was. And he said, well, we've got some travelling to do first. I mean, he was very, you know, enigmatic. I, I quickly understood that Robert Plant 
um, was a highly intelligent guy and, and, and spoke in, you know, like words from Mount Olympus as far as I was concerned. So if there was a lot of travelling to do, um, you know, I wanted to know what there was. In fact, what they were doing, they were going to Marrakesh the next day and that's where, um, you know, Achilles' Last Stand was written, uh, all those travels that they made. So... Again, once you've met your idols and they haven't let you down, and I can say they certainly hadn't, um, it just drew you closer to the band. I just felt a great affinity. Um, and I, I wanted to relay that affinity, and that's when I started writing. I, I, I wrote a, a long piece about the Earl's Court gigs. You know, I, I, I wanted well, to be a writer. Yeah, but I mean, I'd read... You know, I, I, no, I, well, it was published much later in the mag, another yeah. four years on, but... But I wanted, I like, you know, I loved the writers of Nick Kent and Charles Shamari. I read The Enemy religiously. And obviously, David Hepp was when he started writing for The Enemy. I loved his stuff too. But um, <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, 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 yeah, I felt I wanted to write. I wanted, and I was involved in music. I was working in a record shop. My whole world was music, you know. And and I felt I wanted to relay it and tell other people what I felt. And that's what all writers want to do. Um, and I wanted to tell Led Zeppelin fans that this is what has happened and sharing it and, you know, let's find out your experiences and all that stuff. So that's, that was the first stuff I wrote. But the Earl's Court was a turning point again because I'd seen them and I'd met them. So the so, first stuff you wrote wasn't seen by anybody in particular? No, I, I, the first stuff I wrote, I wrote a review of um, Alexander Palace um, to an audience of one, me, um, and I, I used to do that quite a lot. I used to—I wrote reviews on like the Stones albums, just because I thought, you know, in this day and age, you'd have a blog, wouldn't you? And yeah, yeah, <laughs> people yeah, true, would yeah. see it. Yeah. But no, you know, nobody would so, read the blog either. I uh, no, well, no, no, uh, no. So um, I knew that I, I wanted to get a wider audience in some way, and that's obviously where we build up to the fanzine. But before that, another crucial thing that happened: we had a Music Week yearbook come into the shop. Um, and it used to have phone numbers of oh, record yeah. companies. And it had the phone number of Swan Song Records. And I thought, I'm on this. I'm definitely on this. So I started ringing up, um, speaking to a lovely lady, Unity McLean. She was a press Asking officer. to speak to who? Yeah. I, first of all, I just said, I think I'd, the first things were, oh, uh, I'm a big Led Zeppelin fan. Can you tell me when they're touring again? It would be that one. You know, just... A, shot in the dark thinking she would say and yeah, then, just for you I'll yeah, tell you well well that's <laughs> that is in fact bizarre as it sounds how it began to turn out because Unity McLean was quite fascinated that I was this guy that was obsessed with them um, and she said we've got some pictures to sort out why don't you come in the office and sort them out with us oh that's brilliant Christmas Fantastic. birthday New Year's yeah, Eve yeah. all in one result so off I toddled down to 484 uh you know, in the King's Road. And um, it was a weird building. It was it had the Salvation Army in the bottom. And then it, had, and it wasn't very grand at all. It wasn't, you know, gold discs everywhere at all. Very humble. And I went in and, and they were, at the time, they were putting together a songbook. And Unity wanted me to identify which years these pictures were. Oh, yeah. It started like that. And then, I don't know, every two months I used to go in. Um, and she was, you know, and I used to see people come up the stairs. I could tell a story about Richard Cole, Go lovely on. bloke, um, wrote the forward for our book, wonderful guy. But when he saw me in Swan Song, um, he was running up the stairs, and I think he had an axe in his hand, and I kid you not. <laughs> this is exactly what you want and to hear. How he, looked to me, he looked at me and he said, who's that 
ice cream dream. And I said, I'm just a fan. And he said, oh, that's all right then. So I didn't get the axe in my neck. Um, and he went off with his axe somewhere. I don't quite know where. But there were many scenes like that. And I was just a kid, really. You know, we know that there was sex, drugs and rock and roll. But, you know, I did see some weird and wonderful things going on. But I, I just sat at the corner and let, it get, let him get on with it. And then eventually I used to see Jimmy come in now and again. And, you know, I'd see Peter Glyne. And they were quite happy. That You know, I, I don't know... I don't know what it was, but they were quite happy for me to be there. I think they felt that, you know, here was a fan who was trying to help them um, because their archive was all over the place. You know, I, you know I, there were cassettes everywhere. There was, there was all sorts. But it, it became a regular thing that I would go there every two or three months and I would just ring up Unity. Um, and then very crucially, she said to me in the May of 1977, Zephyr flying out from Heathrow... Um, I can give you the times they're flying out, and why don't you go down and wave them off? I thought, it's not the Beatles, is it? It's like, in 1964, there's going to be 30,000 people. There was three of us. There was two other fans that had turned up from Wales, and me, and I had a wonderful afternoon in the company of all of them as they flew out. Uh, they were going to the second half of the tour, and uh, I, could, I could show a picture um, at this point. And it... it it was just incredible. Um, I was a very lucky man. I think I may and, have and, a picture of And there, there it is, with John Paul Jones um, and Robert. And uh, there's me with all me, with all me pictures for them to sign, with badges as big as dinner plates, but it was 1977. The punk era hadn't happened for me yet. Um, but, I mean, that was another thing, you know, they did. Uh, in fact, there was an interesting story about that, because... Um, there was a bogus um, news story in the Evening Standard that someone called Robert Plant had been arrested for knifing someone, and it was someone who'd made out that he was Robert Plant. This all happened as I was going to Heathrow, and I was, I was sent to get the Evening Standard. In fact, I think I had to buy 10, because it had a retraction in that obviously Peter Grant had made sure they put in, saying it's not the real Robert Plant, he's OK, he's on tour in America, and I had to go and get that and take it back to the office. And it was the beginning of me doing... You know, quite a few sort of errands. Um, God, I'd love to have heard the conversation with Peter Grant rings up and demands a retraction. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think I went to the toilet when that went on. <laughs> so, but the magazine. Magazine. I, I want to know about this this business about dating pictures and you know, this is before bands had organised archives. You know, they were still at the point where nobody thought the future would have any interest in this stuff at all, and so. And- how did you go about dating pictures? Because you don't have the internet or anything like no, that. Well, no. Well, again, because I was so obsessive, um, I used to date all the pictures that I got out of the enemy, all the Melody Maker and Circus Magazine and Japanese magazines. So you magazines. had scrapbooks, basically. Yeah, I had massive yeah. stuff. I mean, a couple of times I had to take those in for them to look at. Um, and so yeah, you this, took your scrapbooks I, I did, in yeah, yeah. for well, them to look at? Well, much later... In 1982, I had a phone call from Robert Plant. I was at my house, I think, watching Crossroads. And um, I said, Robert, I'm watching Crossroads. Can you ring back? Um, I didn't say that. Um, And he said, can you come into the office with all your pictures that you can bring? Because we've got an album coming out and we want to choose a lot of photos for the inner sleeve. And that was the Coda album. So... A couple of days later, I went into the office. I took all this stuff in, and Jimmy and Robert turned up. They waded through it. They rang Neil Preston while I was there to find out what he'd got. 
And a few of the pictures that I picked are on the inside sleeve. So, again, that was another TBL service that I was able to offer. So, so uh, tell us about the, the birth of the fanzine. Okay, so, well, the birth of the fanzine, and there are visuals, um, I wanted to write. I wanted to write about Led Zeppelin. I didn't have a lot of money. I didn't know what it looked like, but I did know that there was a thing called punk rock, and it suddenly appeared on our doorsteps very quickly. And I, I knew that there was punk rock fanzines, and this one, ripped and torn, um, I bought from Camden, and I looked at it and I thought... I think I can do that. Um, so I did. So the first thing I did was mock one up to see what it looked like. And there it is, type of loose, handwritten by Dave Lewis. And eventually, in, in late 78, I established the magazine. That's how the first one came out. So in effect, I wanted to do it in the way that punk fanzines were, which in a way was quite weird because obviously Led Zeppelin were the antichrist of punk rock. And here was I trying to replicate something that was very much a punk rock sort of ethic. Um, but it worked. Um, How did the you first sell it, one then? was handwritten. How did you sell it? How did you get it? I did some adverts in Sounds and Enemy. It was 35p. Um, and people wrote in. And within about six weeks, I sold 150. So I thought, I'm onto something here. Um, it was all done out of my bedroom. It was handwritten, most of it. Um, but the first one was completely handwritten. Then I got a typist. Um, and I used to send these, obviously, to the Swanson office. And word came back from Mount Olympus that they liked it. And they said, no one's ever done this before. And they liked how I was representing them. Um, and, you know, it was, I think the enthusiasm that I had transcended. You know, I, I, again, I don't think they'd ever had anything. Don't forget, this is a period where Led Zeppelin's press um, you know, relations is at an all-time low. You know, the, the punk rock thing's kicked in. They're the dinosaurs of rock. But here's that's somebody a really saying, good point, because absolutely know, nobody yeah. was writing no, anything in No, there wasn't. But here's somebody actually saying, you're quite good. But Not only you, that, your fans me, love you. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Led Zeppelin, like everybody, want to be loved? Absolutely. No question. And I quickly understood that, and the individual members wanted to be loved, because I can tell you, when I did the, four, uh, yeah, it was the fourth issue, which became an A4... There was a load of pictures of Robert Plant, and there's quite a good story. Mick Bonham, um, who was the brother of John, was, uh, he took a load of photos. He was a sort of part-time you know, photographer. And he went to Nebworth when they played Nebworth and um, took loads of great photos. And I went into the Swanson offices, it's early 1980, and Unity said, look, why, why don't you use these? And um, we laid them all out, and they were the terrific photos, but they were mostly Robert. Um, you know where this is going. So, <laughs> so we laid them all out. There was a crisis. These are the sort of things that used to happen to me. As we were looking at them all, somebody knocked over a cup of coffee, and all these pictures turned out brown in the magazine because we couldn't dry them out. Right. But they were okay. Anyway, so the mag goes through, and um, I think I rang up Unity and said, oh, you know, you know has everyone seen that? Oh, yeah. Jimmy wants to know why there's not many pictures of him. It was the beginning of a very difficult situation. All, I was all bands, are the, same. All yeah, bands yeah. are going so, to be the same. So I said, oh, I'll make sure next time there's loads of Jimmy. But, um, but they must have been very sore because they got quite bad press, didn't they? Particularly in America in the 70s. I mean, they just simply, magazines like Rolling Stone just weren't taking them very seriously. Well, yeah, I think also you've only got to look at, you know, the enemy and sounds, you know, took a dislike to them, um, you, know, in, in, you know, in the punk era, you know, the Nebworth... Concerts were reviewed fairly um, mixed, as David Hepworth reviewed one, so he will know. I won't tell you what he put, because it would only embarrass us all. 
Oh, oh, go on. You can read all about yeah, it. It's, great on, it's on page 71, actually. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, no, they weren't getting good press. And I think one of the reasons that, you know, they took me to their heart, which they certainly did, um, was because they were being seen and written about in a positive manner. And when I got slick with it, which I did, and I became very good at getting a foot in the door, I knew how to exploit a situation. So when they won the Melody Make Apollo Awards... Um, they won seven awards that year. That was 1979. Um, I knew it was going to be at the Waldorf um, Hotel. So I turned up. Uh, I walked in. Nobody stopped me. And I spent the entire afternoon with them, took loads of photos. And that was a report for the next mag. I, I got very good at that. So when it got to 1980 and the European tour, and they were only going to play in Europe, well, I had to go to Europe. You know, uh, that's all there was to it. So, uh, you know, again, to cover it for the mag, I went over and did five gigs. And uh, unbelievably, I had incredible access to the fact that I was on the side of the stage watching Led Zeppelin. And uh, in one of my books, The Feather in the Wind book, you can see loads of those pictures. And that was because the security guy, Dave Mulder, had said to Peter Grant, we've got Dave Lewis here, he's the guy that does the magazine, and Peter went, he's all right, he can go wherever he likes. Job done. Yeah, yeah. And in those days, it wasn't a triple-A pass. Yeah. You know, it was just, he's all right. So, I mean, yeah. again, it was just incredible. And... and you know, the access I was having then, I had great conversations with them at the hotel. And on the last night, John Bonham wrote down his phone number for me, Cutnall Green, whatever it was. And uh, he said, ring me when you get back. You'll have to come over. So I did. I rang him twice during the July. And he said, oh, well, at the minute we're busy again. We're going to be touring America. Um, so plans were made to go to America. Um, and, you know, suddenly I, I really had got this great access. I must tell you a quick story about Robert Plant where... By at Nebworth, we, we got there on the Thursday, 72 hours before they're going to go on stage, but I'm keen. Anyway, at, bizarrely, on the sound check, uh, which was on the afternoon of the Thursday, August 2nd, um, Robert Plant turns up in a Cherokee Jeep and, and comes into the top of the air, and we just happen to be there. And he swings in and he says, Which way's Nebworth, mate? And he, he won't know where the stage was. Then he recognised me because he, he, by now I was getting recognition. So I knew he had a Cherokee Jeep. Now, this held us in good stead because in the November, he played a five-a-side football tournament at Wembley Pool. And we went along, and I thought, we'll get good access here. I'll get some quotes here. You know, I'm now Mr. Journalist. Anyway, so we're waiting outside in the rain, and we saw his Cherokee, his Cherokee Jeep turn up. And we ran towards it, and he said, get in, right? Now, it was a wet day. I muddy footprints I climbed in the back of his car I must have left such a mess with muddy footprints all over it he never mentioned it but it was the first time I thought I've got to be careful here but uh, I did get away with it so muddy footprints all turned out okay <laughs> so you've written uh, loads of books about Led Zeppelin you've been involved in loads of books about Led Zeppelin two of the most recent ones this extraordinary evenings with Led Zeppelin the complete concert chronicle where you take Every single one of their shows, which is how many? 516. And, and, and counting. And you, you give them a page, pretty much? Well, uh, well, it was an epic job. I mean, I had written a fair few books. I, I'd done a book called The Concert File with a guy called Simon Pallet in the 90s, uh, which was an, a first effort to do the gigs. But we included lots of other things as well, the studio sessions. Um, and that was in a pre-internet age. So, you know, there was lots of gaps and lots of things I knew uh, we hadn't verified. Um, I got friendly with a fan in America, Mike Tremelgo, um, and he 
began sending me logs that he that he had collated of every tour with a picture of the venue, with the set list, and it was the basis of, of some things we did in the magazine. We did we did some we ran some of them in the TBR magazine, and then I said to him, "This needs to be a book. This is just and ridiculous." And you got a report from so you got, pretty much every single show. Yeah, really. yeah, we, yeah. I mean, Mike, I've got people? to give massive credit to Mike, who is over in America, because what he did. He went to a lot of local libraries and university libraries, and he just didn't get the New York Times. He would get the underground newspaper of the time. So we would be able to cover lots of gigs in particularly 69, where they were getting a lot of regional press because they were playing everywhere. As I said to you earlier, in the first year, Led Zeppelin played 149 gigs. That's as many as they played in the next two years. Uh, they played anywhere. And that's one of the reasons Led Zeppelin got so big, and it's a bit understated, is how hard they worked. And Jimmy Page knew the American circuit, as did Peter Grant. They toured with the Yardbirds. They knew where to go. They knew the high-profile gigs. Obviously, they played the Fillmore and places like that. But they played music carnivals. They, you know, they, they played tent shows. You know, On the weekend of Woodstock, Peter Grant told me the reason he didn't want Led Zeppelin to be at Woodstock was because they'd just get lost. There'd be another band on the bill. They went out of town. They went to um, they went to New Jersey. They played with Joe Cocker, who had just come off Woodstock, and he was really adamant that they met the people. They went where the audiences were, and the word of mouth would sell the product. They'd, it would sell the album. They'd get US airplay. They'd get the FM, you know, airplay. So. Yeah, very early on, I identified that Mike had, had done this research and it was how to put it into the best format. And what we felt was best was to do it in a formula, which would be the concert venue, the details, the press reviews. And the one thing we wanted to do was only do the gigs. We didn't want to sidestep studio sessions. We didn't want to get mixed up in anything else. It was the momentum of the gig, gig to gig to gig. And when you read it... And as Richard Cole, who did the forward, said to me, it was like you know living my life again because you understand how they grew and how they got to be the biggest band in the entire world. And it was through hard work, dedication, musical skill, the fact that no two night was you know the same live. I'm an incredible live band. In fact, as I often say, that tells the story of Led Zeppelin from the place they function best, live on stage. So, and the other book you published recently is a book about Nebworth, which was <laughs> their their last UK show. Yeah. Apart from the reunion, which we'll come to. Yeah, Nebworth was a very much a rites of passage for a lot of people. If you ask a lot of people in England uh, where they saw Led Zeppelin, more often than not, they will say Nebworth. Nebworth was a very big coming together. Um, of the fan base because they, they, you know, Led Zeppelin hadn't toured for, they hadn't played in England for four years. They'd, obviously, Robert Plant had had some tragedies and s- such like, and they hadn't played anywhere for two years. And then they decided to come back again. When I interviewed Peter Grant in 1993, he said to me, "If we're going to come back, we must play the biggest place there is possible because we've got to be the biggest." So Nebworth at the time was the big stage, was the big setting. Um, you know, it really established itself. Um, and they did two weeks, not one, but two. So it was a great coming together of the fan base. Obviously, the pressure was on them to deliver. It's a post-punk era or punk era. 
Um, you know, they hadn't played anywhere. The new wave of British heavy metal was developing. You know, the Iron Maidens were coming in. In America, there was Van Halen. Well, they had to reclaim their crown. They had a lot to lose. And by and large, they pulled it off. They still, there were still moments of you know, absolute magic. They were still a great live band. They needed to get out there and do it a whole lot more. But Nebworth, for a lot of people, and you know, they, everyone's got a story about Nebworth, and that is what the book's about. People who were there you know, were 16-year-olds, travelled on a bus, never, you know, never been drinking before, whatever. And it was, it was a rites of passage gig. And I, again, I don't think there's many other bands that have got such a, a central gig or two gigs that, that so many people went right. to. And it should have been the beginning of a new era. Um, because Led Zeppelin, I feel, and I think many other fans felt, still had new places to go. Unfortunately, it wasn't to be. So, and it wasn't to be because John Bonham died. Yeah. And, uh, and that was the end of it. Yeah. So, did you think, well, there's no future in my fanzine <laughs> at that point? Well, I, I carried on. I carried on into 1981. Robert Plant um, did the Honey Drippers thing. Jimmy um, started doing the Death Wish you know, soundtrack and, and, and done a couple of things with Jeff Beck. And, and Jonesy got into production, but I'd, I'd lost heart a bit because I'd, I quickly realised it was going to be very difficult dealing with three management offices than it was one. Mm-hmm. And Swan Song was falling apart. Peter Grant wasn't in a great health. And I could just see there were difficult days ahead. And I didn't know if I had the time and the energy to be as involved as I, as I was. Were I re- you writing I re- retrospective stuff about Leb Zeppelin? Or are you just doing their new projects then? Were yeah, well, doing- I did a bit of both. The, the yeah. magazine was always filled with both. Yeah. You know, you're, obviously, you wanted to talk you know, about the now because the now is important. Um, you know, that's changed retrospectively. But I, I think, um, yeah, I, I just, I'd lost a little bit of heart and I just felt... I didn't know where they were going to go, and I didn't know. I'd regret it actually. I was, in a way, I wish I'd have kept going. I didn't stop doing other Zeppelin stuff. I did things for Record Collector, and, and, and again, I did a book in 1983, my first book called The Final Acclaim. It wasn't. Um, <laughs> with a publisher in Manchester called Babylon Books, and I think I made 3p out of that actually. Uh, actually, it wasn't as much as that. Um, so I was never going to be businessman of the year, but uh, the book got out there. It was the best of TBL. It wasn't the greatest book ever, but a lot of people, you know, clue. It was a good way of tying it up a bit. But then, so things moved on. You know, I was working in retail. I got married and whatever. And, and, but I always kept an interest. I always went, always went to Robert's gigs, did the firm stuff. But it was evident that the glory days were going to be hard to recapture. But then something called Live Aid happened. And everything changed overnight because that performance, as sloppy as it was, drew people back. Because in the early 80s, I can tell you now, Led Zeppelin's you know, stock, particularly in England, was low. You know, you know, I went around, you know, if you said you're a Led Zeppelin fan, it was quite scorned. You know, if you think about that now, it's ridiculous. But it was for a while. Live Aid began to change it because suddenly people understood that Led Zeppelin was a powerful force. You know, they may not have been great that night, uh, but then they did the 88 reunion. Robert Plant was doing Led Zeppelin songs live. Jimmy did the Outlider thing. You know, everything was a lot more focused. But what there wasn't in the marketplace was a Led Zeppelin greatest hits. And Jimmy looked at that. 
1990 and produced the remasters, box set and the double album. That was a turning point. And very conveniently, I was writing another book called Led Zeppelin, A Celebration, which I'd been eyeing for a while to be a major reference book. This was going to be an outpouring of all the stuff that I'd done over the years. Very nicely, after turning me down a couple of times, Chris Charlesworth at Omnibus Press, who, who had worked with Zeppelin when he was melody maker, um, writer, etc., and, and a fantastic guy, gave me a break. And he said, OK, go away and do it. So we did. We did have a minor problem, because I went to a Jason Bonham gig, um, and Peter Grant was there. And Peter Grant said, I had a chat with him, I hadn't seen him for many years, and it was all quite pally, and I said, oh, I'm writing a book. And Phil Carson was there as well. He was an executive of Atlantic, and he went on to manage Robert and Jimmy during the 80s, and I think Peter was a little bit pissed off about that. Well, I know he was. Because I said to Peter, I've got this book going on. And he said, oh, what's that? What's that about? I said, well, it's a reference book. Anyway, the following week, um, Chris Charles has got a letter. And I'm quickly going to relay this, if I can find it. Talk amongst yourselves. Um, and this letter wasn't entirely complimentary. Oh, the words cease and desist. Um, <laughs> 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 Hold on, folks. The letter's here, so here it is. Peter Grant, headed notepaper. Oh, this is a first. You don't yeah. want one of these, dear. <laughs> but there's a significant thing in this, a very significant thing. Um, I must say, blah, blah, blah. As you know, David Lewis and I spoke at the recent Jason Bonham gig, and during the conversation, he explained to me that he was proposing to write a new book entitled Led Zeppelin, A Celebration. When asked if Jimmy Robert or John Paul Jones knew of this... I was surprised to learn that they did not. However, I did learn that apparently Phil Carson had already received the synopsis, a fact which puzzled me slightly. I should point out that Phil Carson had not and never had any connection with Led Zeppelin whatsoever, save only for his professional role as Atlantic Records representative while in the company's employ some years ago. I do feel justified in saying that the members of the band should, as a matter of courtesy, have had prior knowledge of this proposed book, now that I'm aware, I shall, of course, inform the band of Dave Lewis's intentions. With regard to John Bonham, both Pat Bonham and myself are joint administrators of his entire estate, and I ask, therefore, that we see what is written prior to any publication. Unbelievable. <laughs> Two things in that. The band. He talks as though he's still manager of Led Zeppelin. This is 1990. Led Zeppelin had been you know, defunct for 10 years. It was a good example of how Peter Grant and lots of other people surrounding Led Zeppelin could never let go of Led Zeppelin. You know, the band, he felt he was still responsible for whatever was coming out, and I just, I felt that was, you know... Well, you, would, you wouldn't let go, would you? Because you've, you've gone from no, having no. the biggest calling Co card in the business to not wouldn't. having any at all. Of course he wouldn't. There was a happy ending. Um, he saw all the text. He thought it was great. And when he signed my book, I've got it here now, it says... To Dave, the ultimate Led Zeppelin fan and a smashing bloke, Peter Grant. I'll take that. Yeah. I'll take oh. that. I'll That's take great. that. I'll take Very that. Nice. So, tell us about the O2 reunion. Which yeah, is I mean, whoa, bloody hell! The O2 reunion. Yeah, and well, also they, they rehearsed for a, a long time, didn't they? Was that they did. Well, three weeks again without Robert for a bit of it. But I was watching the Jeremy Carl show um, on a Wednesday morning, and I had a phone call. Trinifold management. We want to put you through to Robert Plant. Okay, yeah, 
can he ring back? I'm just watching Jeremy Carl. Um, so Robert came on the line and he said mysteriously, um, who supported us at the Wembley show and did we open with Immigrant Song? It, that was the opening line, not Easter one. You know, Davey, okay, blah, blah, blah. So I quickly told him and he said, oh, this was the June of 2007. He said, oh, we've got some Zeppelin things coming up. I said, oh, what's that then? And he said, oh, well, the song remains the same. We're going to re-release. And there might be some other stuff. Catch up with you sometime. <laughs> that was the end of that. Obviously, I didn't know they were in the rehearsal studio, without a doubt, in that June. That was when they were, they were first rehearsing with Jason. And that was when the rumours began. And suddenly it was evident that there was this show for Ahmet. It was going to be something. It was, was it going to be the Royal Albert Hall? Uh, that was the first proposal. They were only going to play with Cream. And they were going to do three numbers. Suddenly that goes out. Harvey Goldsmith involved. And they say, we want to do a full set. And they went and checked the O2 out. I went to um, the press announcement in the September, an extraordinary afternoon, when seeing was believing. Harvey Goldsmith was on stage explaining what was going to happen. They were going to play this gig. It was going to be November the 26th, 2007. They were going to do a full set. Led Zeppelin were back. Uh, unbelievable. All that was needed was how do you get hold of one of the 17,000 tickets? I probably lost five years of my life in trying to make sure that I got in. The gods did smile on me because I was luckily put on Robert Plant's guest list. Thank you, Robert. Um, and, but I, I, I did go... I mean, everyone wanted a ticket. I mean, it was an incredible few months, you know. I, I, and I know the pictures that I've got of me at the O2. You know, I look really gone. You know, I, I was worn out. Um, and it was an incredible night. It was a bit like when players say they played in, you know, an FA Cup final and it all went by them in a blur. That's how I felt the O2 was for me and for a lot of people. You suddenly had all these fans from 30 countries converging on the O2 on a Monday, cold Monday night. Led Zeppelin suddenly appeared out of nowhere. Um, had a lot to lose that night. As we know, did an incredible set. We came away... And it was like it hadn't happened almost, you know. And, and then it was the big question as well, what's going to happen now? Are they going to tour? Are they going to play more dates? Uh, you know, there, there was a lot of, you know, speculation. Jimmy certainly wanted it, but Robert was doing the Alison Krauss thing and all of that. But the O2 was and is, at the moment, a magnificent swan song. I know you were there. I know, you know, they had a lot to lose that night. And, and to do it in the way they did it, you know... If anything's made me proud to be a Led Zeppelin fan, it was that night. And the Celebration Day film, subsequently, which came out, is fantastic. And again, in a lot of ways, I enjoyed that more because I didn't have the pressure of the night. Um, and I can tell you when they played Stairway to Heaven, I cried like a baby. But, you know, I've been doing this thing a long time. So it, it, I think <laughs> so I deserve So you're presumably fairly well positioned to be able to tell us if there's any chance they might do it again. Well... Okay. Because um, they'd spent three weeks working up that one night. Just, that, well, I think, it, I think it's, it's to time. everyone's disappointment that it didn't carry on in some ways. Um, you know, I could be selfish and say, well, I saw it. But you could say, let's just say they'd done a 30-day tour. Well, okay, when you get to the 28th night, it's not quite as special as the first. And maybe some of the Led Zeppelin legacy would have been tarnished if that had have happened. That's pretty selfish because lots of people want to see them. People want to see them now. Kids want to see them. I mean, if they did reform, 
it, it would be a big, a big number. Um, never say never. I, the only re I think if they were to do something, they would have to have a reason. I don't know what that reason looks like. I don't know if it could ever happen. Personally, I think, I think it could be over. Jimmy hasn't played for a long time. He's a very happy man. He lives his life as he wants to. Um, you know, it doesn't owe us anything. None of them do. If it is over, that is a brilliant, brilliant finale. And we can all walk away saying, that was Led Zeppelin for one night only. What a great thing that we got one more chance. Whether we'll get another, maybe, maybe we won't. If we don't, we're left with an incredible legacy of music, of memories, of YouTube clips. You can watch Al's Court on YouTube now. You can watch anything. Led Zeppelin are forever in the present tense. And that won't change. Ladies and gentlemen, Dave Lewis. Thank you. Um, if anybody wants to buy a magazine, I have some, and I have a couple of books. Um, come and see me. Yes, yeah, as you can see, Dave is an entrepreneur from the start as right ever, through. As ever. You know, uh, Peter Grant would admire this. You know, I'm sure he will sell you. Sell you, uh, I don't know, you haven't got any copies of this. Oh, I'm that's too heavy. Yes, yeah, too but heavy. It is on Amazon for 26 quid. Get in there. <laughs> Dave thank Lewis, you. thank you very thank much. You, folks. Thank, thank you, folks. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.